The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Let's see the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And if you would endure it, uh, a brief word of encouragement. You might say, that's unlike you. Well, I'm working at it. Um, remember when we first started praying through Psalms on Wednesday nights? It was a little awkward, a little clunky. Wasn't quite sure how it would work. You all have embraced it and grown in it. And my heart's just so blessed on Wednesdays to hear God's people praying together. Uh, eyes less on the outline and more up on the word of God. And just such a blessing to, um, to pray with you. So thank you for being that blessing and enduring some, I know it's not the favorite word in a Baptist vocabulary, changes. So thank you. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, you may remember, you may not, we were working our way through this, but it's been a while since I've had a Wednesday night. So if you forget what we've said before, just view it as a standalone message, and I'll begin reading back at verse one. The word of God says, if I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal, If I have prophetic power and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body even to be burned but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child And I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child, and when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So reads the very words of God. We uh, here at the church have a practice of preaching uh, consecutive expositional sermons through books, not avoiding any uh, texts or verses, because we want to preach the whole counsel of God. And I have to confess we do that for, well, two reasons. One of them is that one that I just mentioned. We do it because we want to declare everything that God has said. We don't want to pick and choose. The second one is when I have to pick and choose, I'm totally paralyzed with indecision. And Charlie can even attest that uh, half or more of yesterday was me wandering in my office wondering, what on earth am I going to speak on on Wednesday night? And then remembered that, uh, well, I still have one sermon left here. So I hate picking passages, was digging through books and 
looking for what to, where to go next, so pray for me next week because that's exactly where I'll be back after we finish this chapter. However, if you can go all the way back into the cobwebs of last year, round about, I think from July through mid-October, we spent uh, some decently painful sermons in this chapter, known as the love chapter, looking at what love is and isn't and should be and ought to be. And, uh, and there's times where when you look at it, you do come under quite a fair bit of conviction. You might say, oh no, is that what's going to happen tonight? Well, hopefully not, but maybe. That's between you and the Lord and how you're living your life. So sometimes when we look at the Bible, we are more aware of some categories than others. Now, I know categories are not the most exciting thing. Like, ooh, categories. You really organize people will love this section. The rest of us will endure it. So when we look at this chapter, you could break it up into a few pieces. You could say, well, John, or not John, Paul is looking at uh, the, the topic of love from three vantage points. One of them is what you might call an idealistic perspective. And by idealistic, I don't mean like pie in the sky, like that unachievable. No, what he it, what it means is, here's what ought to be. And you can capture it in moments in verse four. Love is patient and love is kind. Well, that's an idealistic perspective. It's not painting in fake, false, imaginary colors. It's actually saying, here's what should be. And we would put that in the category of kind of idealistic. There's uh, another category called uh, realistic. And that's often, well, what our love is. And he knows this because he puts his big bony finger right on that nerve. It's not arrogant. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. And we're like, it's like he knows my life. That's the realistic view. He's acknowledging what is, but without saying like, yeah, that's, I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying it is and it shouldn't be. There's a third category and that's the one for tonight. And that is the category of what we might call optimistic. Now, before you get too carried away and predisposed ideas of what optimism means, sometimes when we apply that word optimism, it's to that person in our life that despite all facts to the contrary, they choose to believe something that isn't true. That's not what I mean by optimism. Optimism, it, when, I, when I'm speaking in biblical terms, isn't so much what, uh, well, I ought to be idealistically now, and it's not what realistically is true in ways that it shouldn't be. It looks with an eye to heaven on what unavoidably will be. We've looked at love here as to what it should be. We've looked at love here in our life, what it shouldn't be. And Paul in this last section says, now let me, let me show you what love will be and will be eternally in heaven. Now if that doesn't get you somewhat excited, it is late on a Wednesday night. But even on a late Wednesday night post-dinner, you should be excited here what will love be in, in, into eternity? Now, I will confess early on, preachers are beggars and thieves, and so we steal, borrow, and plunder. And so, if you were to go and read Jonathan Edwards' book, Charity and Its Fruits, 
and you were to go to that last two chapters, one of which is heaven, a world of love, you would be like, that's where he got it. True. You're correct. I do encourage you all to go and read that sermon. Uh, if you want to come to my office and photocopy my, uh, co- you, you can, uh, but I'll be quoting from Edwards heavily tonight because there's sometimes where you just read something like, that's just so good. Even my summary is like, well, it'd be like trying to mimic Van Gogh with crayons. Like, I'm not going to do it. I'll just be like, go sh- see the picture of Van Gogh. So, what will love be in its final destination? Not uh, so much the ins and the outs and the failed attempts here on the earth, but what will it be in heaven? We want to consider that under three topics or headings tonight. The first is the endurance of love into eternity. The endurance of love into eternity. So, we're going to grab that first phrase of uh, verse eight, and that's really going to drive the, well, the rest of the sermon. Love never ends. Now that's stated negatively, not that it's a bad thing. It's just, it tells you what it doesn't do. And so you could state it positively as well. Love uh, positively endures forever. Now that is quite a, that's a huge statement for Paul to make. And he's made some monumental statements so far. He's talked about the ways that angels speak and offering up your body for glory and and the pursuit of um, understanding mystery and knowledge. And he's looked at some big things, but this might be just the winner of all of them. There will never come a time in time, and then if we were to exit time, where love stops. You'll never find the, the shore of the ocean that is God's love. Never. You'll never, uh, like they did early on in trying to explore the Nile and finding and tracing the longest river on earth, and then they, they, through much toil and danger, find the source of the Nile. They found, well, look here. Here's where the Nile stops. You'll never find that with love. It, It doesn't have one of those. It doesn't have an ending point or an expiration date. It endures longer. I didn't plan this, and so it's probably just flop. It it, it has a longer shelf life than Twinkies. (laughs) If you're a kid here and you're like, I've never had a Twinkie, your parents love you and have protected you from much. But go try one. They're really good. So it has no expiration date. It lasts forever. Love is not what we could say seasonal. It's not a single-use kind of thing. And while our world seems really, really into single-use things, whether they're the blades on my uh, planer, that it's like you use them, they get dull, you throw them away. Or as parents, there's a lot of things in your household that are single-use, and you don't reuse them. Wipies, (laughs) single-use. Throw it away. Love's not like that. Love actually does not have anything about it that is temporary in nature. There's something about it that can uh, supersede and exceed all of those things. And so we're actually, if you start thinking about what are the things in your life that never come to an end? 
It's actually a really short list. Some things feel, the two-year-old and three-year-old stage feels like it'll never come. It does, though. Sometimes the music you listen to, you're like, man, it's really good. And then the people who love you in your life are like, actually, it's really not. The 80s weren't that great. I don't care what you say. They were not. So now that I've made enemies of some in the room, there are things that if you just think about them, they have a shelf life. They end. Even your life here on the earth on the side of glory, doesn't it also come to an end? You might say, oh, but the resurrection. Okay, the resurrection does defeat that. But all the other things in our life, from the chairs you're sitting in to the one day this building won't even be, they all serve a purpose for a season, and then when that season is gone, it's, it's over. Love isn't like that. Love has nothing inherent in it that would cause that to be the case. There's nothing about it or in its circumstance that then lends itself to that. It, it actually transcends all of these limitations. Now, the reason that I bring that up is very simple. Well, there's two of them. Number one, that's what Paul says at the beginning of verse eight. Love never ends. Love actually doesn't come to an end. And then he goes on to tell us of several things that do. Look at the list in verse eight. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, they will pass away. Now, if you recall, the argument that was going on in Corinth, well, actually, there were many arguments going on from Lord's Supper uh, abuses to uh, who had the better gifts to like a competitive nature in the gifts. And remember, it did circle around uh, these things, a prophecy speaking in different languages that you didn't know, and some sense of like not knowledge in and of itself or knowledge as we would think of it, maybe like a word of knowledge. You were able to know something in a way in which we don't normally know things. Now it's in that context that Paul is bringing this theme of love, the superiority of love in verses one through seven, and now here, the, the durative nature of love. And it's as though, or not even as though, uh, he puts his finger right here on this issue and says, you know, the stuff you're arguing about is temporary. And the thing that you're neglecting is forever. So you're, you're, you're neglecting loving one another and you're neglecting it to, at the expense of stuff that's past or passing away. Now, it doesn't take much of a rocket scientist to look at that and say, you know, I should probably devote myself to the things that don't wear out and will endure forever into eternity, well, like love, and not get so bent out of shape over these things that are passing away. Those things that were passing away was actually a a grievous source of division in the church. And one of the things that Charlie and I talked about today just on a, on a whole different topic was just how grievous division is among the assembled saints. And all the time we waste on all this other stuff. Much of it we are not commanded to do, by the way. And we neglect love for one another and love for God. 
And so we could think, well, Lord, look at, the, look at all the programs we got, and look at all what we've done. And look. He would, I think, would quite clearly say, well, that's odd, because the thing I told you to do, <laughs> you neglected. And the stuff you were all wound up on and divided over, it's like getting all upset about things that are passing away. That's exactly his argument. Now, many would look at this passage and want it to be a sermon about the charismatic gifts, like tell me about prophecy or speaking in tongues or can I heal people? Like that, that is not even Paul's point in here. I don't think he's like, you know what? People are gonna argue 2,000 years from now about prophecy in tongues and so I really need a passage to address that. Like no, it, it's actually in the context of pursuing the better portion that he actually says, you know, all this stuff, tongues, knowledge, and um, prophecy, those are passing away. They serve a temporary purpose within the church and are not durative. They don't endure forever. Love is. Now, uh, you might say, or we'll, we'll, we'll just take his words for it. He says in verse 10 that when the perfect arrives, the partial things pass away. So many would look at this text and say, well, okay, well, what is the perfect that he's mentioning? The word that he uses there for those interested would be uh, when, the, when the telos comes. You would know that there's a lot of different things that can be meant by that. And so some would look at that and say, well, perhaps by the telos, and, and what he'll use later is, uh, I think, He'll use the mature or the growing into manhood uh, to, to uh, symbolize the same thing. Some would say, well, well, maybe what he means is the, the formation of the canon. So in a season of the church's history when we don't have the 27 books of the New Testament, sure we had the 39 of the old, but the New Testament is still being formed. These gifts were employed and they were employed for a purpose and Functionally, when the ink dried on, we'll just say for argument's sake that Revelation was the last one, cannons closed, gifts fade away, and we're off and running. Perhaps that is it. Some would say that these gifts were fundamental in the maturing process or the establishing of the church, and once that church then established in the world, then need for them falls away, and so as the church grows from, if I could steal Paul's analogy, from childhood to manhood, that the, the needs for those, the, those things actually fade away as well. Others would say, this is the last one, I'm not going to give you an endless list of what others say, that uh, what he means is the coming of Christ and the ushering in of the eternal state. You might say, well, which one is it? You might say, I suspect it's that last one because that's what Brian does. Well, I'll pull, a, I'll pull a bit of a fast one. I think there's elements in all three. Like that's eat your cake and eat it, or have your cake and eat it too. What's wrong with having your cake and eating it? So uh, is it true that many of the elements involved in Revelation are also tied to these gifts? And so the formation of a canon would show that maturation. Yeah, I think it would. Would it also be true that as the church grows through time, some things needed to establish it aren't needed now that she is maturing yeah and is it also true that if you tied both of those together revelation and maturation 
where do those two topics find their maximum full expression, or could I use the term culmination? Wouldn't it be at the revelation of Jesus Christ at the end of the age? Wouldn't the church be fully matured, completed then, and wouldn't he be the fullest expression of the revelation of himself? Like he's like there in the clouds? Yeah. So there's actually things that tie all three of them together. And so I'm going to side with Jonathan Edwards. I get that's a little bit of a cheap move, but whatever. Edwards says, and you can actually hear these categories in the way he talks, all of these were extraordinary gifts bestowed for a season for the introduction and establishment of Christianity in the world. And then, or and when this, their end was gained, they were all to fail and to cease. What does that sound like? That sounds like the maturation of the church. The canon of scripture being completed by the apostle John as he'd written the book of Revelation, these miraculous gifts were no longer continued. What does it sound like there? It actually sounds like he, he puts in the formation of the canon as well. For now, or excuse me, for there was now completed and an established written revelation of the mind of God and the will of God, wherein God had fully recorded a standing and sufficient rule for the church in all ages. So if you could apply that to what Paul's saying here in this text, you all are fighting over things that are used to help establish the church, to help guide the church in those early years, And even as he's writing them, they're falling by the wayside. Not because they were flawed. It's because they served a temporal purpose. And you're using the squabbling over these little fading things to be the things that divide you one from another. You've lost all sight of the importance of Uh, of what we are called to do and to be as God's people. You've allowed fading, single-use kind of things to compromise your engagement in something that will last forever. Something that, if you'll remember, what's to be that one earmark of a disciple, that, that one definitive way in which the world will know that you're my disciples? By the way, you... Love, you're giving away your birthright for stuff that's fading away. You're squabbling over milk that even though it says it's good for another three days, it's not even passing that sniff test. You're fighting over that kind of stuff. You're allowing that to impact your body life when there's no way that it should be doing that. Now, you could see as, as these partial things fade with the coming of bigger things, it, uh, and a, a similar analogy would be something like this. A flashlight is a really handy thing when it's dark and kind of a dumb thing when it's really light outside. So what served a purpose early in the morning when it is dark out, as the sun rises, yeah, I mean, it's not really needful all that much anymore, maybe as a defense weapon, but uh, only if it's like those big meg lights. Other than that, it serves really no purpose at all. And so as the church matures, as the canon is filled out, as Christ is drawing near, 
the use for these gifts in particular fades with the coming of the Son and is simply just not needed anymore. Now he'll give two analogies of this. The first one is that of uh, childhood to adulthood. The picture is of, now it's very interesting the things that he mentions. He says that children are limited in their speech and thought and reasoning. Do not two of those line up very closely to things previously mentioned? Didn't he just talk about tongues of angels and men and speaking in tongues or languages? And then he says, you know, sometimes when kids grow and the, you hear that first dada, you're like, yes, they're going to Harvard or whatever school. Like you think they're the smartest. And then you realize like later on or moms, when the kid learns mom, you're like brought to tears. And then later in life, you're like, would they please stop saying mom for two minutes? For two minutes. Yeah, it, it kind of wear. there are things that wear out a little bit. And so in speech, thought, and reason, there's a limitation in vocabulary, understanding, experiences. And Paul says, verse 11, that there's things that accompany childhood. And they, it's not like it's a bad thing. It's actually an appropriate thing because guess what? They are, well, a child. And then as you grow into adulthood, those things should. Now, it's interesting. He uses the word... Uh, in the ESV, uh, it says, I gave up childish things. The idea is to pass away. It's actually the same words he used back in verse 8. I believe he's drawing a direct analogy there or a direct comparison. So he says, you know what? Kids act a certain way, and then when you grow up, uh, you should act differently. Now, by way of quick distraction, um, this is a failure that's plaguing so many, I wish I could just narrow it into the young men, but I can't. It also uh, captures young ladies as well. Um, there is a push from our nation and from the world and from, I think, ultimately Satan uh, that would convince kids that perpetually being children is acceptable. And so it's okay if you're still maturing at 30. And you're, like, and you're just going, you know what, if you would just take, I get it's out of context, but Paul says, yeah, no, it's not. It's, no, you should have put that stuff away. There's actually a very evil uh, purpose to it, right? So uh, children, whether we acknowledge it or not, um, are more prone to what sorts of things? Well, they're prone to trusting someone else to defend them and someone else to provide for them and someone else to tell them what to do. Odd, I'm sure our world would never want, like whole societies wanting that from their governments. And so this push towards perpetual adolescence is actually not nearly as innocent as it sounds. So this should be lots of young men who still live in their mom's basements, a life verse. Like, too close to the truth, moving on. <clears throat> Paul says there's some things that you gotta do as a kid that you don't do now. Right at some point, wearing like the full onesie with the foots is neither possible nor preferable. <laughs> Paul says, well, the stuff you're fighting about, it's that kind of stuff. You're fighting about childish things. And you should actually have grown into a mature man or body in Christ Jesus 
who embraces the things to which you were made to do, which would be loving God and loving one another. The second analogy that he gives, and this one is, this one is not as easy uh, as the first one. Uh, verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. You know I love the ESV. Is there anyone who has a translation? I didn't look this up, that's why I'm like, genuinely soliciting feedback. Is there any other translation that says something besides dimly or darkly? I'm not trying to fleece out the one person with the NIV. That's not what I'm doing. (laughs) Is it basically darkly or dimly? So everyone is just as bad as the ESV on this one. Okay, good. So it's a poor analogy. The analogy is not... For now we look into the mirror like it's right after the shower and it's all foggy. But then one, like down the road, we'll look in a clear mirror. It isn't the picture. The idea of a mirror is that of indirect sight. Because it's, it's contrasted, not with a clear mirror, but with what? Face to face. He says, now we see in a mirror darkly, dimly, the word he uses there, it's a really, really interesting word. It means um, like a, a puzzling as a riddle, as an enigma, or and this is the, the one that really, I think, uh, latches it, uh, by indirect communication. We see through different things. Now think of your life here as the church. Do you have a face-to-face sight of Christ? right now do you see him we do see him by faith and we see him through the word and we see him as offered in the sacrament we, I mean, there, there's ways in which but paul said that there there's intermediaries there it's as though it's through a reflection it's there's something at this point in life that's kind of between you that will not always be the case now if that doesn't get you excited to realize that what he's saying here is the same thing we've been having in, uh, on Wednesday nights with Pastor Brian in Revelation 22. What does Revelation say is the culmination of salvation and redemption? And we will see his, see, it's like the end. That's the, like the, the welcome to forever moment. You see and gaze upon the face and there's no longer anything between you. Job says in chapter 19, verse 25, no, seven or six. It's in that neighborhood. He says that on the day of what he's describing as the day of resurrection, I'll see him with my own eyes and we will not be strangers. The ESV says, or the English says something like, I'll see him and not a stranger. It's not like, hey, who are you? Like, no, that's not what it's saying. We will no longer be estranged or distanced. That is the unavoidable reality, goal, destination of every man and every woman who believes in Christ. Now there's something that goes from this moment in time and stretches all the way to that moment in time and then infinitely beyond that moment of time. And guess what it is? It's not fancy words of wisdom. It's not prophecy. It's not a gift of knowledge. 
It's actually love is the thing that goes from here all the way through this life to the moment we see him face to face and then even beyond that. Love, he says in verse eight, never ends. It never runs out. It'll never, whether we're on this side in the mirror dimly or we're in that face to face, guess what? Guess while so much is different between those two, guess what's still that thread that weaves them together? Love is. And there will come a day where the mirrors or the intermediaries will fall away. And all we'll have left, well, that sounds reductionistic, and we'll have love for him unblemished. But we won't go back to the intermediaries. If you were to go into my office, you would find above where I work, photo. And in the photo is a 12-year-old kid, or at least he looks 12, and this drop-dead gorgeous woman who looks the same today as she did 18 years ago. Right? It's my wedding photo. And I wasn't much older than 12, but I didn't have a beard, so I looked it. So, when I'm at work, am I face-to-face? No, but I have a photo. Now imagine if I got home and I'm still like, hey, hon, what are you doing? Look at this old photo, it's awesome. You look the same. She's like, yeah, I'm right here, dummy. I'm like, I know, but there's a photo. Like, okay, you're face to face. The intermediary can be done. You'd be kind of weird. Like she would, she would have me go talk to Charlie and wonder what kind of issues mental or imagined I have going on and hope that he could fix that because that's what we do. We hope Charlie can fix stuff. So, <laughs> so, the intermediary, good for a time, good when you're at work, uh, not when you're face-to-face. Christian, there will come a time where you're face-to-face. Don't let the little intermediaries, some of the, the, the things that come, go along in this life, so draw your heart away from the true things that you're supposed to do, i.e. loving God and loving others, that you would fight and squabble about it like wasting your time over childish things at the cost of something that will be rendered obsolete. Secondly, and hopefully by now you've realized these hopefully aren't all equal in length uh, with regards to the points. They're not. Secondly, the perfection of the saint's love for God. So that first point, love will endure beyond the, all these other things. It goes from now until forever. It doesn't end. It'll always endure, and all these other things will pass away with maturity, and, and then at one point, mirrors becoming obsolete. Okay, so we get to that face-to-face. We get to verse 11, verse 12. We get to that mature manhood, the, way, the place where childishness is given up, the place where, verse 12, we actually come face-to-face, And then there's that fascinating phrase at the end of 12, and I shall fully know even as I am fully known. I don't think he's saying like I'll know lots of cool stuff. I think uh, there's a, a, a knowledge there that passes some of the ways that we tend to think. But if you were to take and and consider this, when Jesus was here on the earth, 
he was asked a question that, that should really dominate our thoughts. And the question goes something like this. It was meant as a trap, but he used it as a really cool occasion to uh, summarize the all, well, all of uh, the Old Testament. He was asked what was the greatest commandment. He says, here's the greatest. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Do you remember what he said after that? You shall love the Lord your God. But he didn't just stop there, did he? He said, you shall love him how? With all your heart, with all your soul, and your mind, and your might. Second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these, he said. That kind of sounds like here's the one thing that you should really be intent on. Here's the, 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 now it'll be like not encouraging for a second, but then we'll get there. Have you ever loved him like that? For the briefest fleeting moment, have you ever loved Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? If you have, I, I would argue you're self-deceived. I don't think we've done it for a moment. You could think of the, the greatest, highest moment, whether it's here at church when you were singing like your favorite verse of your favorite song and like your favorite whoever's leading and playing is doing it. And it's just like everything is just there. Take that moment, even then. I've got a divided heart. I, I, I don't think I've had a brief fleeting moment where I've loved him like that. That's the kind of wrestlings that we have here on the earth, isn't it? If you're here and you're a Christian, you know that that's what God requires. And you know that's what Christ provides by way of what Pastor Eric said in one of his prayers, by way of the, the righteousness that he provides for us is actually the righteousness of someone who loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength every moment of well, his time here on the earth. Like he actually did that on, on our behalf. But if we just view it from our perspective, we've never done it, but don't you long for that? Don't, don't you want to love him like that? And aren't you grieved that on this side of things you don't. Do you realize that there will come a, a day where you will? You realize, brothers and sisters, when, when the things of this earth fall away and we encounter that face to face and he raises us from the dead and with glorified bodies, without the presence of sin, without the stain of sin, that you'll actually love him the way you were made to love him. Doesn't that make you long for heaven? And, and there's, well, there, there's one other wonderful piece to it. And hopefully I don't, I'm not totally lost on my notes here, but Whatever. And upon entering that level of love, you'll never fall out of that. It's not like you'll achieve that, and that's an odd word to use for it, but just go with it. 
It's not like you, you'll love him. And then coldness will settle in again, as it often does in this life. Or distraction comes crashing in or slinking in, or however, whether it's a bold distraction or a subtle distraction, and your heart by small, unnoticeable degrees is somehow turned away from the Lord, and you realize, like, well, I don't love him like I should, or as I did. Like, isn't that, those are our experiences now, aren't they? You ever come in and just, like, your heart is just so cold, it's alarming? Mine is. Or you go from, like, really zealous And then, like, somehow you wake up and you're like, it's not what it was. Somewhere along the way, by tiny little degrees, that won't be the case in heaven. You realize that. You will love the resurrected, ascended Lord Jesus Christ as you were made to love him. As you were designed to love him. 1 John 3, verse 2 says something exceptionally, uh, I think, just pointed on this. He says, beloved, even he can't, he can't even address you without talking about the love of God for you. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, what will happen? We will be like him. We will be like him because we will see him, not through a mirror, darkly or dimly, we'll see him as he is. There's something transforming about the vision of Christ on that day and the full revealing of the sons and the daughters of God at that time where we'll be shaped and formed into him and going along with that would be a love for Christ, not, not, not in substance different, because you do love him now, but to a degree that you've never known before. You will love him undistractedly. You love him as you've always longed to love him. You'll love him with your soul and with your mind and with your heart and with your strength. And brothers and sisters, know this, that that day, if we could picture it like this, that day, that that eternity, that culmination of everything is like an arrow that God has loosed from the bow of his decrees. It cannot be avoided. It It is sailing at you even now as we speak, hurling unavoidably towards you, And one day, you will be stricken in a good way with the arrow. That's where it breaks down. All of them do. You will come to the shores of forever. And all this will be true. You'll love the ascended Lord Jesus Christ as you've always longed to love him. The things we've tasted will know in full. The things we've wanted, with regards to loving him, will have. And then never shall they be lost again. Never. Though ages and time, however we think of it, on that side of things, it's hard to talk in time language with, well, forever, as those roll and roll and roll, 
You'll never grow tired of loving him. You could even maybe even think of it this way. You'll somehow perfectly grow in your love for him. It's hard to think of growth and perfection altogether, but you will. Nothing will hinder our love. No coldness will draw us away. This is a longer quote from Edwards, but like I said, it's good. And we're already 51 minutes in, so why not read it? Edward says, divine or Christian love is implanted and dwells and reigns here in the heart as an everlasting fruit of the spirit and one that never fails. It ceases not when the saint comes to die. This love they shall not leave behind, but it shall go with them into eternity and shall be perfected there and shall live and reign in perfect and glorious dominion in their souls forever. Divine love shall not fail, but shall be brought to its most glorious perfection in every individual member of the ransomed church above. Then, in every heart, that love which seems now a spark shall be kindled to a bright and glowing flame. And every ransomed soul shall be, as it were, ablaze with divine and holy love and shall remain and grow in that glorious perfection and blessedness throughout all eternity. The saints in heaven love God for his own sake and each other for God's sake and for the sake of the relation that they have to him and the image of God that is upon them. All their love is pure and holy. Christian, do you realize that that's what's ahead of you? That's how, for lack of a more creative way of saying it, that's how the story ends Or is that how it truly begins? That's the unavoidable reward of every believer in Christ Jesus. That's the the thing received at the end of the race. That's the, the reward for that race run well and the fight well fought. You'll love him as he ought to be loved. Now we'll talk in moments about, well, that would have implications to now, but we'll just revel in the moment of what, what will be. Now there's one third aspect that we want to consider, and that is this, the overflow of God's love for the saint. First the durative nature of love, and then the perfection of the saint's love for God, but there's another element to it. How about God's love for the saint? I'd say, well, he loves me, I love him only because, as John says, he first loved me. So obviously we, we, we know that God uh, loves us. We, we know, and sometimes some of the language we even use in the worship that we sing here would be that there's, uh, there's an ocean of love that God, uh, that flows from God. If we can think of oceans that flow, we could, we could even quote First John 4, 7 and 8, beloved, let us well, let us love one another, for love is from God. All right, there's that, the source, the fountain of it. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who doesn't love does not know God. Why? Well, there's a really simple reason. God is 
love. So God is that, 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 again, hard to wrestle with words to describe it. God's that fountain of love, the source of love. He is love. And so then, therefore, everything in God would then have relationship with the love that he has. So if you could say, well, God is infinite. Well, then, therefore, his love is also, guess what? An infinite kind of love. There's no boundaries or limits to it. He's, uh, in, he's all sufficient in himself. So I guess that would, that, would, that would have an implication on his love. He, he would have an overflowing, inexhaustible, sufficient love. There's not, nothing lacking in his love. He's perfect. His love is perfect. He's unchanging. My goodness, isn't that important when you consider his love? It's not as though he'll love you and then at like year five million and a half and go, you know what, man, you're not as interesting as I thought. I'm moving on. He doesn't change. He didn't love us because we were interesting to begin with. Loves us for his own reasons. His love is eternal as he is eternal, which means we'll never find the boundary of it. Edwards again says, heaven is a world of love and for God is the very fountain of love as the sun is the fountain of light and therefore the glorious presence of God in heaven fills heaven with love. As the sun placed in the midst of the visible heavens is a clear, in a clear day fills the world with its light. So heaven will be a place where God, uh, as he is now, but in higher degrees, um, or in, in ways that we experience um, in a more full sense, heaven is a world of love, if I could steal from Edward's title. You might say, well, wh- why go through all the trouble to, to explain that piece of it seems quite obvious. God loves his people. It's going to continue on into heaven. Let me poke at maybe the experiential side of it here. Do you know that God loves you right now? You, like you can nod. <laughs> Do you always, and we'll be careful, we'll, I'll try to be careful with, with my language do you always experience that? Does it always feel that way? When you're really experiential? No. Now, is that a fault of God? No, it's not. We don't blame him for that. But are there not days where you just say, like, he feels far away? I don't know if, I know he loves, but sometimes I wrestle in the midst of darkness and doubt and sin, like, man, does he love me? That's on this side of things. Guess what you'll never question again in heaven? Guess what you'll never fail to experience fully in heaven? The reality that he loves you. So similar to, and I try to think of like, all right, how do you picture this? How do you, I mean, we're trying to like, work our way into the experiential as well as the eternal, uh, it, it, it would be similar to, and uh, if the analogy doesn't work or breaks down or it doesn't fly, just cover it over with, well, guess what? Love. Uh, so if you were to take someone out on a, in the middle of a Nevada summer day, that sun, so this analogy wouldn't work in Seattle because you're like, it's gray. Uh, okay, it's a Nevada bluebird day. And you were to tell someone, close your eyes, is the sun still shining? They would say yes, and you'd say, well, how do you know that? They can feel it, right? 
And it wouldn't even be like, I'm not sure if I do. That would be the Seattle sun, maybe. Like, no, you, you experience it fully and uh, you'd probably not want to stay in such a state for too long before you get sunburned, right? Similarly, but on a vastly greater scale, you'll know and experience the love of God to degrees and in ways that you've never done here. Now we know he loves us and we, and we receive, like, we, we know it here, but we know it as though it's in a glass darkly and dimly. We know it doesn't ebb and flow. It's just our experience of it here. We know it doesn't grow cold. We know it doesn't move away. We know, we know all of those are elements of our fallen existence here. But that won't be the case in heaven. You won't ever wonder that again. You won't ever wrestle with, is he far? Is he displeased? Does he let? Never again. Never. And it, if we can imagine heaven as a, a state of constant increase, it would only grow from there. Now, brothers and sisters, if that's what's ahead of us, as it clearly seems in the word, right? How should we live on this side of things? If that's the unavoidable conclusion, that's where we're going, that's where the story ends and begins again. Not like reincarnation, but like you get what I'm saying, right? That's the eternal uh, state that we have. How should we live now? I'm reminded of the words of a hymn that we would sing here as well. Uh, it says, we're the whole realm of nature mine. That would be an offering that's far too small. Love, speaking of God's love for me, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If that's the way that God is, is loving us and that's what he has for his people, we would look at our life and say there's nothing too great in this life that I could render to him that would be on that day not worth it. So, quick or five quick applications in the one minute that we don't have left. First, don't love the things of this world. Don't, don't let your heart pander after the idols that lie and want to destroy. Don't be a people who love the things that are passing away. Don't do that. Don't allow the world and the things of the world to have a grip on your heart. Secondly, long and love the things that are of heaven. You know, we taste pieces of it here on the earth. The assembly of the saints being one of them. The word of God, the pursuit of God, prayer, like all of those are, are things that will be known more fully in heaven. So we ought to love them here and now. The third one might be a bit of a curveball. Be content with difficulty on this side of things. Edward says the glorious city of light and love is, as it were, at the top of the hill or a mountain, and there's no way to it except by upward and arduous steps. You will struggle in this life. You will struggle to love God. You will struggle to love one another. It'll be a fight. Continue to fight the good fight. This fight is only for a season. It won't be forever. And so in the middle of wrestling your dark, deceptive, sneaky heart, know I only have to do this for a few fleeting years. 
and then I'll love him like I should. Well, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna love as well as I can to that day. Fourth, fix your eyes on Christ who is in heaven and is the source of love. And then the last one, which would seem absolutely most obvious, uh, love one another now. We'll be loving God and loving one another through eternity. And that will never wear out. So not why not is like, well, what better thing? Like, no, not why not. Love one another and love God now. And let us not be drawn away by such lesser things. I think about the stuff I get so distracted about and wound up about and anxious about and really in, in the scope of what is waiting for us in eternity. Is it really worth getting pushed off our priority here on the earth? No, it's not. I'll leave you with this. It's not my words, it's Mr. Edwards again, but too good to not read. Edwards says, in this world the saints find much to hinder them. They have a great deal of dullness and heaviness. They carry about with them a flesh that isn't fitted to be the organ for the soul. He's talking about the side where our flesh is tainted with sin. Uh, For a soul inflamed with a high uh, exercise of divine love, but which has found a great clog and hindrance to the spirit so that they cannot express their love for God as they would or wish and cannot be so active and lively in it as they desire. It sounds like Edward knew exactly what this was like. Often, they fain would fly, but they're held down as with a dead weight upon the wing. Fain would they be to be active and to mount up as a flame of fire, but they find themselves, as it were, hampered and chained down. So they cannot do as their love inclines them to do. But in heaven, they shall have no such hindrance. They shall have no dullness or unwieldiness and no corruption of the heart to war against divine love and hinder its expressions. The saints in heaven will have no difficulty in expressing all their love. Their souls being on fire with holy love shall not be like a fire pent up, but like a flame uncovered and at liberty. Their spirits being winged with love shall have no weight upon them to hinder their flight. They shall be no lack of strength or activity, nor any lack of words wherein to praise the object of their affections. Nothing shall hinder them from communing with God and praising and serving him just as their love inclines them to do. Let's pray. Our Father, we stagger to wrap our minds and hearts around what you have for us. Cause us, O God, to set our hearts on these things. Forgive us for the ways that we have been drawn off by lesser things and arrest us with an even greater love for you and for for our neighbors. 
Forgive our lovelessness. Stir up our zeal in loving you. It causes us to know in, in seasons of struggle and toil and where we are utterly frustrated with our lack of love or the imperfections of our love, help us to know in our souls that it will not always be this way. That one day we'll have the zealous heart we've always wanted and we'll have the words to express it. Until that day, Lord, help us to labor faithfully put our shoulder to the plow and to not look back. To love one another from the heart even now. Knowing that it's a taste of what we'll be doing forever. Cause our love to increase, we pray in our Savior's name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.